Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Tom Steyer. Tonight we'll be getting to know Mr. Steyer and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have the studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Tom Steyer was born in 1957 and grew up in New York City. He graduated from Yale and got his MBA from Stanford. In 1986, he moved to San Francisco and started his own small investment firm, managing a new fund that was backed by two investors. During his career, he managed investments for universities, foundations, and individuals, and says at its peak, the firm's investments totaled $36 billion. In 2013, he turned to nonprofit and political advocacy and founded NextGen America to combat climate change and increase voter participation. Steyer then started a push to impeach President Donald Trump through grassroots organizing and advertising. He and his wife Catherine Taylor have donated time and millions of dollars to charitable projects meant to advance educational opportunity for renewable energy and clean air and water. They've also given more than $120 million to building the Beneficial State Bank, which makes affordable loans to working people, small businesses, and nonprofit projects. Steyer lives in San Francisco and has four grown children. Tom Steyer, thanks for joining us on Conversation with the Candidate. Adam, it's great to be here. We appreciate your time. So you're one of the strongest voices out there against President Donald Trump, but you do also share some things in common. Outsider, businessman, billionaire. What do you say to those Democrats who are looking to draw even more distinction than you're able to draw in the form of a candidate who's either a woman or a person of color? Look. I think what Democrats are looking for, I think what Americans are looking for, is a positive vision for the future that we can all turn to. And so I think that Mr. Trump actually pointed out something true in 2016, which is that most Americans think that this government is broken, that corporations have bought the government, that it no longer works of, by, and for the people. And I think people responded to that because I think he was telling the truth. Now, I think. I disagree with him on virtually every policy. I find him personally repugnant. And as you know, I started Need to Impeach, which has more than 8 million citizens who've signed on to push for his impeachment and removal for office. But I think what America is still looking for is a positive vision for how we're going to go forward together and create a future that is better than any of us can imagine. If you pay attention to what's coming out of Washington, and I'm sure you do, it looks like impeachment is a dead issue, even among Democrats. They want, some of them want the inquiry into impeachment. So why, from your perspective, keep pushing for that? Well, it's funny because when you say it's a dead issue, I think the number of Democratic Congress people who have signed on to the idea there should be an impeachment inquiry, that's the inside the beltway jargon, is 116 as of this morning. Almost half of the Democratic caucus and four more joined on this morning. So actually, I think the funny thing is, I've been pushing for this for almost two years because it was obvious to me that this was the most corrupt president in American history, that he'd more than met the criteria to be impeached, and I was trying to tell the truth and stand up for the American people. And two years later, it actually looks like institutional Washington, D.C. has caught up with what I and eight other million Americans were saying. 
but it's a political process. The House could very well impeach the president with its Democratic votes. The Senate, the Republican Senate, will acquit. So why do it? Well, I think people inside the Beltway, and that question implies that this is an inside the Beltway question. To me, there's something else going on here, which is I want the American people to see the truth. All of our research says when Americans see the truth, whether they're Trump voters or anti-Trump voters, they all say the same thing. I didn't know this was true. He's a liar and a cheat. And if I did that, I'd go to jail. And I want the American people, my whole, my push is to push power back to the American people, to let the American people take control of our government again, including impeachment. Have the televised hearings. Let us all see. Let the American people see. Do the right thing. Tell the truth. Stand up for the American people. And let the political consequences be what they be. That's what we should be doing, telling the truth and standing up for the American people. Why did you change your mind about running for president? You were in Iowa earlier this year and said, not going to do it. And, and here you are. Honestly, Adam, I really, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm running because I couldn't sleep. The two things that I really believe weren't being talked about hardly at all. One is the idea that our government has been bought by corporations, that we need to return power to the people to get any of these policy issues enacted. And the second is climate. You know, if you watched the debate last night, they hardly talked at all about climate. We're in a crisis. Since I've started running for president, I've said I would declare a climate emergency on the first day of my presidency. I would use the emergency powers of the president to deal with it if Congress didn't act within 100 days. And I would use this on day one to rebuild America's stature in the world, to reach out to all of our traditional allies, to all of our traditional counterparts, because this is a global problem, and to reassort, reassert American moral leadership, American technological leadership, and American industrial leadership around the world, because that's what it's going to take. All right, Mr. Steyer, thanks for answering these questions. The really tough ones await, though, <laughs> in the town hall format. Adam, thanks thank for doing you this. Much. And coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. We have our town hall of New Hampshire voters here with plenty of questions. We're going to jump right into it, Mr. Steyer, starting with Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight, Mr. Steyer. Elizabeth, call me Tom. Hi, Tom. Everybody does. <laughs> Thank you. So, Tom, uh, before, before we uh, started taping, we were talking about the debates that we've been seeing the past couple of nights. And mm -hmm. obviously, you weren't there with them uh, because you got into the race late. Mm -hmm. Besides a whole lot of wealth. What do you think that you can offer to American voters that the other 20 some odd candidates that we've been seeing, mostly with a whole lot more government experience, uh, what, what can you offer that they can't? So that's a great question. That's really fair. The biggest issue that I see in the United States is that we have a broken federal government that basically corporations have performed a hostile corporate takeover of the government in DC through their cash. And that what we need to do to get any of those policies prescriptions that are people are talking about in the debates, like healthcare, re, you know, redo, 
like a Green New Deal, like education, is we first need to break the stranglehold that the corporations have on our democracy and return the government to the people, of, by, and for the people. And for the last 10 years, as an outsider, I've been organizing coalitions around the country of ordinary citizens to take on unchecked corporate power. So I started doing that 10 years ago in my home state of California, taking on oil companies directly on the ballot as they tried to repeal the most progressive energy and climate laws in the world. No one thought they could be beaten. We actually beat them and got 70% of the vote by going directly to the people and talking about what people needed with regards to energy in terms of clean air, clean water, and jobs. And since then, I've taken on the tobacco companies directly on the ballot, who'd won 17 times in a row. We got 60% of the votes by going, again, directly to the people, not to the legislature. We've taken on the drug companies. We've done direct democracy around the country, beating people on a state level. I also started the largest grassroots organization in the United States, Next Gen America. We've actually been in New Hampshire, just so you know, since the beginning of 2014. We're on 18 college campuses in New Hampshire. In 2018, we chose 38 Republican districts in the House. We organized around young people, and we changed the turnout of people under 30 from the previous midterm at 18% participation, less than one out of five people under 30 were voting, to 41%. More than doubled it. That's the largest generation in America, bigger than the boomers, was voting at half the rate of other Americans, and that's not a democracy. So my answer to your question is, as an outsider, I have been taking on corporate power across this country and beating them for 10 years. If you believe that these corporations run our government, and they do, then we're not getting any of those things people are talking about in the debates unless we break that power. And I've talked about, I've done it for 10 years successfully. I've done it as an outsider. When I started Need to Impeach, the Democratic leadership was mad as hell at me. But I was telling the truth, and I was standing up for the American people in an obvious way, when nobody else would do it. So you ask me, what, what do you want to do, why I should do this? Because I'm the person who for 10 years has gone and tried to push the power to the American people against the corporations, and that's what I'm here to do. That's what we have to do if we're going to get health care. That's what we're going to have to do if we're going to get the Green New Deal. We're going to have to take the power back for the people. And that's what I believe in. The American people are the smartest group in the world. If you leave it up to us, we'll get the best possible answer. If you leave it up to the corporations, they'll get the best possible answer for them. And that's not what we want. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. The next question comes from Leanne Kluger. Welcome. Leanne. What steps will you take to resolve the humanitarian crisis at our nation's border? So let me just start by telling you a quick story about how I see this. One of the people who I work with is a, an organizer in energy on an environmental justice basis. Her name is Vien Trong. She's a really outstanding person. And she's married to a child psychologist. And he was listening to a discussion 
of what's going on at the border, and they had in the background some of the children who'd been separated from their parents crying. And he started to cry. And then said, you know, what's so upsetting? Obviously, he cares about kids. He's a child psychologist. He said, I know the difference between a child who's crying because he or she is hungry, or he or she is tired, or he or she is undergoing torture. And I know that these children are undergoing something so painful that they will live with it for the rest of their lives. So when we talk about what's going on on the border, and we talk about the inhumanity that this government is doing in our name, it's absolutely unforgivable in my mind as an American. People who come to the border fleeing violence have legal rights internationally that we've agreed to. We have an obligation to treat them humanely and with respect. We have to stop this right now. I mean, one of the things you guys may know about me is that my dad was a lawyer who interrupted his law practice to go in the Navy in World War II and prosecuted the Nazis at Nuremberg. So when you think about what the United States traditionally stands for, we stand for moral leadership in the world. Oh, we always have. That's always been the point of this country. I mean, we started out being for freedom and justice. So we would have, I would stop this. I mean, it's ridiculous. Of anyone in this room would stop this on day one. This is not what America stands for. And this is not the kind of thing that leads to success around the world. The way that we will succeed around the world is by having people realize we're trustworthy, decent, straightforward, and a good partner. That's how you build value in the world, by people understanding that they can trust you to do the right thing so they don't have to attack you. I would say, no one has ever built something beautiful in a fist fight. And that's what this president does. He starts a fist fight on the assumption that if he punches you in the face, that will be the end of it, and it never is. So when you see him do this kind of inhumane thing for political purposes, you know, that is, it's going to be something that we're going to have to react to to show that we're the opposite on day one. There are going to be so many things from a value standpoint that we're going to have to show about what America really is. And look, I've done 50 of these town halls. I've gone to 35 states, including deep red states. Americans are fantastic. Totally fantastic. Very brave, very compassionate. We have, this president obviously is leading us in the wrong way. We have lost our way as a country. And a big part of what we need to do, this is a perfect example of how we need to change to reassert who we are, what America means, and so we can build something together that reflects our values and a future that we can create that we're really proud of. Thank you very much for the question. Leanne. Next question comes from Nancy Keene. Hi. Thank yes. you for being here to talk to us. What a treat. Appreciate it. I love this stuff. Oh, well, we'll <laughs> see if you love this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I sense a zinger in my future. I'm talking about the future. Actually, I'm asking a question about Social Security benefits. Okay. I keep hearing, you know, 25 years it's going to be bankrupt, maybe 2034 it will be bankrupt. How, what would you do to ensure that we still continue to get our Social Security benefits that we've put into all of our careers? So, let me say this. I did spend 30 years in the private sector. 
I am very used to the idea that you have to look forward and budget for the future the way every family in the United States has to look forward and budget for the future. And if you look at Social Security, the numbers are straightforward because you can, you can make estimates of how long people are gonna live, you can make estimates for how much money is gonna come into the system, and you, you can see the flows. For years, way more money came into the Social Security system than went out. And that's turning around as people like me get older, the baby boomers get older, people start taking Social Security benefits that they've paid in through the years. This is not something we should be messing around with. We should, the government has got to say, we're gonna guarantee this system. Look, I there's no question, the government should be budgeting looking forward, just the way all of us have to budget looking forward, including budgeting Social Security. You know, I remember saying to my mom, so my mom was a journalist, and then she was a teacher in the New York public schools and in the Brooklyn House of Detention. And she spent her whole life basically trying to do the right thing. She thought of journalism as basically a calling, like being a priest, like making sure the American people knew the truth. And she was one of the least money-oriented people in the whole world. She really didn't care about it. She really cared about what she, you know, what she believed was right. And I once talked to her about Social Security and about her Social Security money because she'd been a working person her whole life. And she said, Tom, that is my money. Don't you take that from me. <laughs> I was like, okay, mama. <laughs> and that's how Americans feel. I have been paying into this system for my whole life. I have been budgeting my life so that I could retire and you know, take care of myself and be independent. Don't touch my money. That's how people feel. They have a right to feel that way and the government should be doing its budgeting to make sure that they live up, we live up to our promises. Okay, That's my answer. You. Thank you, Nancy. The next question comes from Mary Christine. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, so I appreciate you really focusing on reaching out directly to the American public. I have a little experience with, uh, with NextGen when I was at UNH last year. I swear you couldn't walk 10 feet without encountering <laughs> one of their tables. <laughs> and we are all over the campuses in New Hampshire. Yes, and, uh, and now that you're running for president, um, even my nine-year-old knows who you are because of all of your ads on YouTube videos, <laughs> right? And, and at the end of the week, we get a stack like this of all of your literature that comes in the mail. Um, so, but, but it's really important to reach out directly to the people and to make sure the power goes back to the people um, and not the corporations. So bearing that in mind, um, what are your plans for the future of clean energy to make sure that that power doesn't go back to the corporations and stays with the people? So I have been a really active energy and climate hawk for more than a decade. And I put out a climate plan last week, last Thursday. And here are the three elements that I think are different. And let me say this about all the climate plans. Unless they go into effect, they don't matter. And that's the point I've been trying to make in this election, which is talking about policies that you have no ability to pass in the real world is interesting intellectually, but what I'm trying to talk about is what will actually happen in the real world. So I want to talk about that in this context. Number one, if I'm president, I will declare an emergency on day one, a climate emergency. I will give the Congress 100 days to pass some form of Green New Deal. And if they don't, I will use the emergency powers of the presidency. Because that's the timing. We're in a crisis. We actually have to act fast 
in fact, immediately. And if we don't act, if, if we wait, we miss the window, period, the end. If it's a crisis, act like it's a crisis. Second of all, in answer to your question, my plan is based on the idea of environmental justice, of going directly to communities to ask them how they want this to be implemented. And in particular in the United States, if you look at who has polluted air, who has polluted water, who's getting sick, who's dying, it's low-income communities and communities of color because they don't have the political power to stop it. And I know in my home state of California, if you look at, we have th over three million people with asthma, you can see exactly which communities have all the asthma, and that's exactly who it is. The second thing I'd say about communities is this. We, uh, in my plan, we set aside $50 billion for displaced workers in the industries, in the fossil fuel industries. We should not solve this on the back of working people who are doing jobs and have dedicated their lives to taking care of their families. It's not their fault, but we should hold them harmless. That's the second thing. And the last thing is this. If we're going to solve this problem, we're going to do it on a global basis. If you look at what the United States can do on its own, we're very significant, but we cannot control this. This is a classic example of the 21st century, where the problems in the United States do not start inside the borders or end inside the borders. If you think about immigration, it's also migration. There are issues in other countries that dramatically affect people coming to our borders. In terms of climate, energy, pollution, this is a global issue. I'll just give you some quick stats to put that in context. We have 86 coal plants in the United States, total. Just one part of China's industrial plan is called the Belt and Road. It's about them expanding their industrial might into Southeast Asia and Africa. As part of the Belt and Road proposal, they're proposing to build 350 coal plants. That's just one thing. Turkey is planning to build 93 coal plants. So when you put the United States in the context of the world, if we're going to solve this problem, we're going to have to reassert American leadership in the world. We're going to have to go to be the people we've always thought we were and were, which is moral and intellectual leaders in the world, technological leaders in the world, and business leaders in the world. So when we think about how are we going to bring this kind of solution in the real world, in the time we need to do it, every time I hear people talk about their climate plans, my answer is, okay, but there's some realities in this world that plan doesn't deal with. The timing of the natural world, I always say, Mother Nature is not giving us an extension because we tried hard and we needed a couple more years to debate. Mother Nature is going to do what she's going to do. She is going to control the timing and we are part of a world and those are just facts. And unless you're dealing with those facts, you're not actually dealing with the problem. You're talking about it, but you're not dealing with it. And that's why I'm running for president. Because it's time for us to stop talking about magical solutions and start talking about what we're actually going to do in the real world that we have to do. I've got four kids. I feel my responsibilities as an American, but as a human being for my kids and everybody's kids and everybody's grandkids 
and everybody unborn. If we're going to move on with pride, we're going to do the right thing. And that's what I'm talking about doing together. And we're going to enjoy it. We can do it. I'm a business person. I've looked at this stuff. We'll be richer, better employed, better paid, and healthier if we do it. But we can't be scared. We're going to have to meet some challenges and do them. And that's what Americans do, too. Let's name the challenge. Let's meet the challenge. And let's have a beer afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. We've got about a minute left, Mr. Steyer. Uh, one quick question for you. Your home state, California, is going to require presidential <laughs> candidates to release their tax returns. I don't know Are why okay they got that one up. You're okay with releasing your own tax returns? Yes, Anything, I am. Everything's good in there? Yes. And why is that? Why are you okay with that, laying that out there? Because I have nothing to hide on him. And you think the president does? I don't think there's any question. Listen, when someone explains to you over five years with differing explanations, all of them obviously false, about why they're doing something, you realize they have something to hide. You know, as a parent, if your kid just keeps changing his or her story about what, where their homework is or why it isn't done, yeah, they, they have something to hide. They didn't do their homework. Here, this guy has something to hide. We're not sure what it is, but he darn well doesn't want to tell the truth about this. And he's fought for years to prevent it. But what we know about him is he's a fake. I, I mean, I was watching him, the, the, the negotiations with China break apart. This guy's supposed to be the deal maker. He's 0 for 3 years in deals. He's, not a, he's a t deal talker. He's not a deal maker. He's a guy who doesn't have any relationship with anyone. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We've got 30 minutes commercial free of questions from New Hampshire voters, and we're going to jump right into things with Terrence Guinarain. Thank you for being here. Um, there will be candidates on the Democratic side and some on the Republican side, Deb would say, um, head, fund ma head fund managers like yourself are responsible for the wealth gap between the wealthy and middle class and are also responsible for the 2008 financial crisis. How would you address that? So um, let's that's two questions. One is about the income gap and the other one is about the crisis. So let me talk about the income gap for a second. Since 1980, so that's 40 years, all of the increased income in the United States has gone to the richest Americans. All of it. And that has been done because it has gone to the people who own and who run corporations. The corporate take in our society has done nothing but go up and everybody who's associated with it has benefited disproportionately, and everybody else has basically been stagnant for 40 years. Traditionally in America, that is not at all how it worked. Traditionally in America, a rising tide lifted all boats. So the question is, how did that happen? And the answer is, honestly, what I'm talking about. It's a corporate takeover of our government. If you look at the rights of working people, They've been attacked systematically, legally, around the country thousands of times. You know, if you look at the rights of people to organize, the rights of people to sue their employers, minimum wage, uh, uh, the so-called right-to-work states, 
which are really an attempt to prevent people from organizing, there has been a concerted attack on working people and organized labor for 40 years that's been very successful. In addition, if you look at just the tax rules over the last 40 years, all the tax cuts have vastly disproportionately helped rich people and corporations. If you look at the tax cut from last year, that was you know, directly a cor basically a corporate tax cut with a huge tax cut for rich people and a very modest tax cut for working people. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So when you think about how to redress that and what the cause of it is, I am not anti-capitalist. I'm a believer in the, the private sector runs 90% of America. It drives innovation. It drives you know, job growth. It drives prosperity. Here's what I'm opposed to. I don't want corporations writing the laws about how they operate. If we have, a, if people in the United States tomorrow, today, are gonna have to go to a gas station to fill up. I'm a huge climate hawk, but I know that's true. There has to be a corporation to hire the people, run the gas station, deliver, deliver the oil and gas so people can get in their cars and go to work. Here's what I don't want. I don't want that oil and gas company to tell me what the minimum wage is for the people who work for them. I don't want them to write the rules on pollution about how much they have to pollute. I don't want them to write the tax laws about what kind of taxes they have to pay. And I don't want them to write the rules about how we substitute renewable energy for fossil fuels. But I know, so I am not against the private sector. I'm against the private sector running the government. And so actually, I think the cause of this, and I've spent 10 years sort of peeling the onion on American democracy about why it isn't working, why it's broken, and it's corporate cash. And to the extent that people in the financial sector are part of that corporate cash to push for those you know, laws and rules to benefit themselves at the expense of everybody else, then that's true. But it's really, when you go to the heart of it, you can see we have the highest drug prices in the world because the drug companies want it and the people in Congress give it to them. That's why we pay twice as much. You know, I, I think today, Mr. Trump said he was going to pass a regulation that let people go to Canada to buy their drugs. Do you understand what a failure that is? That the president is saying that our system is so bad that we're going to make it possible to use somebody else's system? The sec that was the, so the first question was about inequality. That is what's driving it. The second question was about... Uh, hedge fund managers were responsible for the financial crisis of 2008. So the financial crisis, okay, it's exi if you look at the financial crisis of 2008, which I think I spent a reasonable amount of time looking at in horror, it really came down to fraud, mortgage fraud. People in the United States didn't understand what they were doing, and a bunch of people made a lot of money giving them mortgages with high fees associated with them that they could never pay back. And no, it, people, those big, it actually was huge banks and mortgage brokers making billions of dollars, basically writing mortgages for people they could never pay off and then selling the mortgages into the market. That's what they were doing and taking a huge fee up front. It's kind of a game of musical chairs. But this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. 
they were taking advantage of people because they knew the key point was the footnote on page 67. Nobody who was buying a house and taking out a mortgage knew the key point was the footnote on page 67, and they never told them. They were taking advantage of people. There was a massive fraud perpetrated by banks on home, home buyers, and they did pay big fines, but they never went to jail. So when I think about this, this was a classic case of corporations writing the laws so they could do what they want, bringing down the American economy and the world economy, and there was no criminal liability. And I look at that and I say, okay, fraud on the American people in massive scale, that's a crime. Selling opioids in huge scale to American young people and hooking them intentionally, that's a crime. There's something going on here where the pursuit of profit to the exclusion of any other sentiment cannot be permitted in this society. And we've allowed it, and we've allowed these corporations to do it and to write the laws governing them. So when, you think, when I think about the mortgage crisis, the first thing I say is those banks were acting fraudulently. They were too big. They were too powerful. They were never really held to account. It's a classic example of what I'm talking about, of corporations running America for themselves and the government not standing up for the American people. And that is a perfect example of what I'm against. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Terrence. And quickly, Mr. Sauer, to just follow on Terrence's question. So when you were a hedge fund manager, what did you invest in? How, how did you make your money? Look, we invested in every part of the American by industry until I started to say some things I just can't, you know, like fo fossil fuels, I came to the conclusion, oh my God, we have this huge climate crisis. That's one of the reasons I left my job and divested from that and, st and started working to get a, a correct climate solution. But let me make a point about investing and the way I see it. The way you do well investing is actually by growing companies. If you do the math, the way that you do well, the way that Warren Buffett does well, is buying companies that grow, that their revenues go up, and that means they're gonna be hiring more people, training more people, selling more goods and services, and everything is gonna grow together. And that's actually what we believed in, was I never thought that it was smart to, to like, you don't win by cutting, you win by growing. And that was what I thought when I was an investor. That's actually how you make money over a long period of time, is by compounding in something good, not by doing a series of clever trades along the way. And so when I think about it, there's a bunch of it. You can look at industries and see that is an industry that has the wind at its back. And if you have a good management team, you can, then you can do part of that. And you can create something over a long period of time that works well. And that's actually was my philosophy of business, and that's what I'm talking about here. You know, if you think about, when I was in business, I had a philosophy that I wanted to have a fair relationship with everybody for a long period of time. That I wanted to have the same lawyer, and the same accountant, and the same representative, and pay them fairly and have a good deal so we could keep doing things without a lot of change. That that's how you create value over time, is a series of fair, positive, 
deals that you do together and then you do it again. A thousand good deals, not one deal where you rip everybody off. And that's the difference between me and Mr. Trump. He's a guy who thinks the way you win is by ripping people off. And what I think is the way you win is by creating something together openly and honestly and fairly, not trying to take advantage, but try and build something together so everybody wins. And that's how we ran our business. And that's why I honestly think that's the only way over time that you actually build value. Next question comes from Kathleen Hoey. Hi, Tom. Hi. Um, so you talked about this already a little bit. Um, my question is, how, as president, would you address the high cost of prescription drugs so that people can get the treatment they need and not sacrifice their basic yes. needs? So drug pricing is one of the most emotional topics in America because at some level, drug companies are coming up with things, and they're going to continue <coughs> to come up with things that are going to save lives and make people be able to live much more healthily while they're alive. And I think it, we should start by saying part of the genius of America is we are going to solve a lot of things that would have killed us a generation ago. You know, you think about breast cancer. That used to be a death sentence. Leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The American medical research, you know, cohort is doing and has done incredible things for us. And that's part of you know, the great part of America. But the way it works, I don't know how much you guys know about this, is, but basically, if you get a new drug that's permitted by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, you get a patent on it. That only you can make it for seven years. And you get to charge whatever you want. Which, if you have a drug that's going to keep people alive, you can charge a lot. We all know that. But at the end of seven years, the patent's supposed to run out. And that's when the system gets really spooky, and I'll tell you why. They do a bunch of things that, in my mind, the government should never allow them to do. They do a bunch of things to extend that patent for years so that instead of it going from being on patent to become a generic drug that everybody can make, they extend it in a variety of ways, including ways that I consider straightforwardly unethical. And that is where I think we have the problem, because I know that we have to incent people to risk hundreds of millions of dollars to develop that drug in the first place. And they should be able to, to charge. But the issue for us is going to be, how do we control that over time? And haven't they gone to a place that is too greedy? And I'll give you an example. You know, at the beginning of this year, on January 1st, hundreds of drugs had their prices lifted. The cost did not go up of creating those drugs. So the question is, doesn't the government within this system have to go back and fight to keep these drug costs down? Because we pay more than any other country for the same drugs. That's why people go to Canada to get their drugs, because they're so much cheaper. They're so much cheaper in Europe. We don't fight to keep those drug costs down here. And so my point on this would be, yeah, we have to incent the research and development of drugs. And we have to fight to make them affordable for Americans because we want them to be created and we want them to be affordable for everybody. There's no point in having great health care that no one can afford. And so we should be, f these companies have gone way too far. They want to write the rules. They you know, it's illegal to go to Canada to buy your drugs. Why would that be true? Only if this system were so broken as it is. And so I look at this as you're gonna have to get up every single day and fight these people. 
we're going to have to break. I keep saying, the w we only have to do two things. Break the stranglehold these corporations have in our government. Drug prices are a perfect example. We're going to have to do that. I mean, I'm talking about structural change in American government, the federal level, to break their control. And this is the poster child for bad behavior by corporations, drug pricing. So, I mean, I, have to, I, mean, I don't want to answer you too long, but I'm talking about term limits for Congress, 12 years, so that they don't just want to stay in forever, but they want to get things done. A national referendum, if, if they won't act, go directly and have a vote of the people to change the law. Easy to vote, you know, do all the non-voter suppression things, which I don't think used to happen in New Hampshire, but watching what's happened with college students, actually there's an attempt to suppress college voting. And lastly, corporations are not people. That's in the law of the United States, corporations are people. That's ridiculous. Anyone can tell. They don't have a heart and soul. They're only solely focused on money. They are not people. They should not have the rights of American citizens. So when I think about drug pricing, this is going to be the poster child that they cannot run us around. They cannot write the laws for themselves. They cannot extend the laws and manipulate the laws to be able to keep things on patent for multiples of what the law says they can. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you. Kathleen. Next question comes from George Matthews. Thank you for coming to New Hampshire. The current occupant of the White House has decimated our international standing as an ally. <coughs> From North Korea to Iran and many places in between, this man has embarrassed our country with immature bluster and extremely dangerous talk. Please tell me how you would approach foreign policy and security of our great nation. So George, thank you for that question. And actually the answer is exactly in line with how I was talking about investing. You know, we have a long history of relationships with countries. And some of them are, are close allies, and that doesn't mean we agree with them on everything, but it means we should trust each other and work together. And some of them I would describe as frenemies. Like we are hooked together, but they're competitive with us. They may not play by our rules, and we absolutely have to stand up for our interests in dealing with them while knowing that we can't, it cannot be one long confrontation that we're gonna have to work together in spite of our differences and in spite of the fact that they may be cheating. So when I think about what we're going to try and do, it's really important around the world that people think what they thought about America, that we're the moral leaders, that we do the right thing. It's incredibly valuable to us to have people trust us. And the whole idea that America first, which is we have no allies, we have no shared interests, the way that we get rich is by taking money out of your pocket, and we know darn well that you're trying to take money out of our pocket, so we're prepared to defend ourselves from your attacks, could not be stupider and more incompetent and less successful. Because we're in a world that is, if you think about the 21st century, the world's just going like this. Everybody know, can see everybody else's world in their hand. They can, you can look in your phone, and everybody has a phone in the world, and see what Florence looks like or Manchester. The trade is at a level that it's never been before. The industrial supply chains are linked in a way they've never been before. The idea that we can be separate from other countries in the world is absurd. And if you look at climate and realize how much we need to solve problems together going forward, the idea that we aren't cooperative, trusting allies with other people is also 
incompetent and absurd. So from my point of view, we have to reassert the idea that we are a trustworthy, honest partner who stands up and does the right thing and sticks up for itself uncompromisingly when people try and take advantage of us. That's who we've always been. We're going to have to be that country again, and we should take great pride in it. You know, Madeleine Albright called us the indispensable country. We can't do it by ourselves, but they can't do it without us. And that's what we have to go back to being Americans. We lead the world. We stand up for what's right. We make things happen in a good way for us and for everybody else. Thank you, George. We've got a Facebook question coming in here from Robert Sabian. He asks, have you ever bought a gun? <laughs> so let me say this. I have never purchased a gun, but I've inherited guns. So my grandfather, who was a, ended up being a research scientist, but when he was a senior in high school, he ran away from home. He was living in Western Pennsylvania. He ran away from home, he changed his name, and he became a cowboy in North Dakota. And he worked as a cowboy for a couple years, and then he went to the man running his ranch because he realized it wasn't going to work. He, all his friends who were cowboys were getting hurt. It's a really dangerous occupation. He loved it, but he realized this is going to be a place where I end up kind of a crippled old cowboy pretty darn soon. So he went to the man running the ranch, and he said, you don't know who I am, but if you'll give me train fare back home, I promise you I'll send it back when I get there. And then I said, George, your father tracked you down in two weeks. I know exactly who you are. <laughs> and so he went back and went to college and became a doctor and a research doctor and worked on some of the really early breakthroughs. He's a uh, cardiologist, worked on the first electrocardiogram. But his whole life, he was a fanatical fisherman and hunter. He loved the out of doors. And he you know, loved being there. And part of what he loved to do was fishing and hunting. And he you know, had heads. And he had a lot of guns. And I inherited some of them. So I've, since I've been a kid, we actually, I, I've been somebody who's had guns around the house. And we actually we have a cattle ranch raising grass-finished cattle to show that it actually sequesters carbon net in the soil that you can raise animals in a way that's very good environmentally. And we give gun safety on our ranch. So in fact, we have people come to the ranch and anyone in the community who wants to learn how to use a gun safely can come and all our kids have done it and I've done it a few times because it's super fun to learn what guns can do, to learn how to use them safely and to make sure that if you are a hunter that you do it in a way that doesn't endanger anybody else. So yeah, all right. never bought them, but I've owned them. Next question. We're under 10 minutes here. We're going to get to a few more questions if we can. Next question comes from Brian Harlow. Oh, good to meet you. Brian, Tom, nice to meet you. Um, keeping in mind that a major contributor to addiction is unresolved childhood trauma, if elected, how would a Steyer administration address the opioid crisis in New Hampshire, as well as the problem of grand families needing to raise the children of those with substance use disorders? Mm -hmm. So, Addiction is a huge health issue, a mental health issue in the United States that is all over the country and incredibly painful for everybody involved, both the people who are addicted, their families, their communities. It's not one person gets hurt. 
the hurt, the pain goes, spirals out to everybody. And I think we have to look at it in a bunch of ways. First of all, it's a health issue for the people who are addicted. And we've got to look at it as a way of how can we help them deal with their problem in a way that's most effective. I think we also have to ask ourselves, why are people getting addicted in the first place? And is somebody, I think everybody probably in the United States at this point has a close friend, the child of a friend, or a relative who's been involved with addiction. I have, and I know what it costs, and I'm very aware of how bad and how desperate it can become. So I look at this as partly a question of why are people getting addicted? What is going on in our society that people would make that choice? I then look at the people who are supplying them and trying to get them addicted and view that as a straight up crime that is unconscionable and that I would be <laughs> very straightforward in dealing with. And then I look at the people who are addicted and talk about how do you get them back to being productive members of society? And as somebody, I mean, I think the most prevalent addiction in the United States is alcohol. And I, I've definitely had lots of relatives who are addicted to alcohol. And I know that the only way that people get through that addiction is by going through a program where they have to beat it every day and it becomes a central focus of their life. You can't just beat it out of your hip pocket. You have to beat it every day. You have to go through pro programs. You have to have support systems to make it happen. And we should make it possible for people to, to do that. But I think that this is a question, honestly, about the heart and soul of America. Because if you look at people in these desperate situations, I think the idea about vilifying them and blaming them as opposed to helping them is a huge mistake. And at the same time, I know when my mom was teaching reading in the Brooklyn House of Detention, so she's like a 60-year-old lady. And I said, so mom, what's everybody in for? What, what are people in, in jail for? And she goes, drugs. Everybody's in for drugs. Some people are in for selling drugs. Some people are in for robbing so they can get money for drugs. Some people are in for, but it's all about drugs, Tom, in the Brooklyn House of Detention. And that was 30 years ago. So I know that their cost to society, spiritual, their cost to society about crime, and I know that for us to heal this, we're going to have to understand where people are and support them in getting to a place that they'd like to be. And I know that vilifying them, of course we have to enforce the laws of the United States of America, but we have to understand where people are too and help them get to a place where they can get back to being productive members. And that is what I would do, because to me, this is a spiritual question for the United States. How can we think of ourselves as a society that's flourishing and has purposes and purpose where people understand what we're doing on the earth if we have soaring ad addiction rates and soaring suicide rates. We should ask ourselves, don't we need a new vision of what we're doing in America together? Don't we need more optimism about what we're creating? Don't we have to recreate the optimistic, brave, compassionate country that we've always been? That's what I want to do. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Much appreciated. Next question comes from Sherry Schmidt. Hi. Thank, Thank you. you. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. Um, do you have a plan for what you'll do as president if the Democrats retake the White House but fail to flip the Senate? And how will you handle Majority Leader McConnell <laughs> if he's reelected, blocking critical legislation and pushing through partisan GOP nominees? So let me say this. My 
go-to move in everything political is going to be to go to the people. So I said I would declare a state of emergency on day one for climate because we can't wait. The timing on that is it's urgent, it's an emergency, treat it with the seriousness and urgency that the issue demands. But I also believe that what's going on, and I think what Mr. McConnell so cleverly and ingeniously supports is this corporate takeover of America. And he does it consistently without any concern for the American people or any concern, in my mind, for ethics. And I think if you saw that he refused to let the law to get to the Senate about protecting our democracy from Russian hacking, it's, it's like, are you kidding me? Because they're hacking on your behalf, you're going to let a, foreign country, a hostile foreign country attack the democracy? That's, you're good with that? So my attitude would be, if that happens, and I really don't think it's going to happen, I think we're going to have a sweeping victory. And, you know, I'm committed to all of the grassroots stuff that we've done for years, knocking, knocking on doors, being on campuses, all of the organizing face-to-face -face that we've done, and we're the biggest in the country. I guarantee we're doing that no matter what. But if, in fact, what you describe happens, my attitude would be, I would go to the American people. The biggest advantage the president has is he or she gets to set the agenda. Trump talks about immigration, suddenly immigration's the issue. Trump talks about racism, suddenly racism is the issue. The issue in this is going to be, we need to get democracy back to the people. And I would spend all my time going to the people and calling it out, and calling him out. Look, we can't be polite about this anymore. I think Democrats have been lying for Republicans for years in hopes that they would like us enough to do deals. I'm, I'm over that. They haven't done any deals. Mitch McConnell hasn't done anything straight up with Democrats, for, as far as I know, ever. The first thing he said about Barack Obama was, my job is to make him a one-term president, not my job is to serve the American people, not my job is to make sure that everyone's life is better. My job is to win politically against the Democrats. Okay. My job, as far as I'm concerned, is to give the power back to the American people so we can decide what's right. And that is involved going out and talking to people and explaining where we are and why. Because we're going to have to decide. This isn't happening unless the American people want it to happen. Unless we have, honestly, a huge sweeping democratic change, which is going to happen. We're going to have that change. And it's going to be the American people insisting on retaking the democracy and getting back the government. And that's what I want to be part of. That's why I'm running. And that's going to be the answer to Mitch McConnell. Did you see he was being called yesterday on, on, on uh, the internet? He was being calling Moscow Mitch McTreason. <laughs> so that's what we're going to have to do. It's, it's going to be the American people who are going to take down Mitch McConnell. It's going to be the American people who take down Donald Trump. It's going to be the American people who take down this whole group who've sold out to the companies, who've gone completely rogue on democracy. And we're going to have to take it back. And we're going to. And I want to be part of it. And I'm incredibly excited about it, to be honest. Thank you. Sherry Schmidt, thank you for your question. And Tom Steyer, thank you for answering all these questions. We've hit 30 <laughs> minutes. I probably went quickly for you, didn't it? Uh, it's just starting. I refuse to leave. To I'm not leaving. Thank you to the studio audience. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. 
You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.